It's a Mental Health Chat Monday, season two, everybody. That's four, but I mean two. <laughs> this is a series where we sit down with a brand new guest every week to discuss their journey with mental illness and mental wellness. Because here on Mental Health Chat Monday, our motto is turning mental illness into mental wellness. I am your host, DJ Bionic. Thank you so very much for tuning in with me today. That is, but I'm not why we're here. I'm never why we're here. Obviously, I'm just the catalyst for this thing. Today, we're here to talk to a brand new friend of mine, <laughs> TikTok star, writer, poet, MFA holder, and beautifully icon. This eyeshadow right now is really giving me everything. Uh, John Blake is here today. Hello, hello, hello. Hey. Uh, how are how was your day going? How are you? How are things? I know we've already been chatting for many many minutes before this, but <laughs> well, I uh, I just got back to fine dining, so I have Sundays and Mondays off. So this is the beginning of my weekend, mm-hmm. and I um, well, interesting thing, I I left the house for the first time today in makeup. Yeah, in Bryan, Texas. Ooh, and I was afraid. Mm-hmm. I was scared. I live in a in a part where there are no sidewalks. This is rural, and um, I had to walk. You know, it's about a half, about a quarter mile to a half mile to the corner store, mm-hmm. and I went to get cigarettes. And people avoided me like the plague. <laughs> didn't say good morning. Didn't say hi. There was no southern hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on my way back, I'm getting ready to walk through uh, the property where my apartment is. And some gentleman goes, excuse me, could you could you walk around the other way and not come through here? And I was like, oh, is, is everything okay? He goes, well, uh, you're going to the store, right? I said, no, I'm going home. He goes, oh, okay. So you thought I didn't live here and you didn't want me to walk through this property. Mm-hmm. Exactly that. So I found myself standing there for about uh, four, maybe six seconds playing chess in my head. Like, so do I respond? Do I call them out? Do I start an argument? Do I break up my phone and make this a TikTok video? Do I leave it alone? And I was like, you know what? I called myself the N-word and I was like, you, look, you ain't even had your coffee yet. Take your ass home. Yep, because... Because there's two of them, I'm automatically, first instinct, get ready to fight. Like physically, knuckle mm-hmm. up, get ready to throw these hands because it's about to go down. And that was that was the initial, I think, possibly trauma response because mm. I've seen so many videos of white people coming out their face thinking they can say all kinds of shit. Yeah. And... I know where I am. I'm in conservative Texas. And these guys look like the type that have... I I thought of Ahmaud Arbery. Mm. These two guys are sitting in a pickup truck. They're doing the landscaping. And like, I have about 50 yards to get to my door. So, I mean, is, 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 is this... It, I, had, I was like, John... Is this where you want to make your last stand? Because it could, I literally was asking myself, this could be your last stand. Is, is this what you want? Is this the hill you want to die on? Is this going to make a big impact? Is this going to be, 
something talked about. You know what I mean? Like when you lose your life right now, it, it, I had to, I, in six seconds, all of this stuff was going through my head. Yeah. And like, it was so overwhelming to consider all these options that I stood there waiting for them to say something else. And they didn't say nothing, got in the truck and, and started to drive away. And I think something came to him when he, I, I think he looked me up and down when he was finishing his statement. He realized I was 6'4", 240 pounds. And all of a sudden he was like, I didn't think this through too much. Especially yeah. since I stopped walking. He thought he was just going to say something. I was going to be like, ooh, sorry, boo. But instead <laughs> I said, what did you say to me? And I think he heard the New York accent and he was like, oh, yeah, no, he ain't from here. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, he was like, oh, wait, like, don't let the eyeshadow fool you. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you fit to get fucked up. Like, yeah. so, and I'm not a violent person. So, I don't, there was just so, I saw, I, I literally saw like MTV videos of all these different depictions of what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I don't believe he saw all those different scenarios. I don't believe he gave it a second thought to just say whatever was on his mind. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, is this going to spark a protest in Brian after this man's son puts a bullet in my chest? That's what went through my mind. 50 years on this planet, I've never thought this way. But this, like, the escalation of violence lately has had me like every single event every single experience with other people i'm like is this where it ends yeah yeah it's scary because you don't really you don't know what's going to happen when you leave the house you have no idea if because i i fortunately live in a part of st louis that is uh very progressive very um i i work at a restaurant very close to home and i go to work um, a couple times a week in makeup and my eyeshadow popping, you know, liner, all kinds of crap. And my nails are done. Like, Wish. I you know, I live in a really nice part of St. Louis. But every part of St. Louis is like that. Uh, and people get confused about that when they come to St. Louis. They think it's a, a progressive city in the middle of a big red state. It's like, no, there's little pockets of progression here. But... And so you never really know, even when I go to perform at Pride or I go to the Grove where all the gay clubs are, like, I don't know what's going to happen when we really hit these streets. And white people don't have to think about that. Non-queer people don't have to think about that. I was living in Los Angeles. And I got, uh, I got a room in this, in this spot. And my boss helped me to get this room. It was a thousand a month, which in LA is cheap as fuck. That's so for a room, I, yeah, a room, uh, a single room, noun, one, that's it. Bathroom shared with all the other people in this house. Okay. So I get the room. I'm on 99th and Broadway, which is one may consider the hood. And my <laughs> boss said, but look, he already knew I was gender fluid. I, I came to work with makeup. I come to work with my nails painted. Um, I was working as a chef. And he said to me, but look, I got you this room, but I'm going to tell you right now, you can't do any of that gay shit over there. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, that neighborhood, they don't play. 
And so I moved into this room because I needed a place to live and stifled myself at all times mm. because it was dangerous. And it clearly was. He was right. It was dangerous to be myself in blue ass California, in blue ass Los Angeles. Yep. And yep. people are like, but you're in LA. What are you? And I'm like, man, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. It don't matter where you are. It really, truly don't, whether the state is blue or red. It does not matter where you are. Right. Right. People so, don't come if they don't come. Yeah. So it, it when I, I try to I try to tell, I relay that story to people and they're like, but it but because they see it as like safe, not safe. And mm. I'm like, no, 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 not safe, not safe. There is no such thing as safe. And I thought today, I thought about that today when I left the house. I'm like, look, you, you're not going to be safe anywhere. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be yourself for these last couple of decades you may have on this planet. Or are you going to go back into hiding like you have for 40 fucking years? Mm. Like, what you going to do? You know what I mean? Like, you just going to put on your makeup for TikTok or you going to be yourself when you leave the house? Like, what you going to do? Mm -hmm. So I, I did it. And the first fucking day, <laughs> within the first fucking hour, the bullshit. Introducing the bullshit. The bullshit. Please welcome to like, the stage. And I'm like, this man works on the property where my apartment is. So this is the first of confrontations to come. Mm -hmm. And so now that I've done it, like the, the next door neighbor doesn't talk to me. She sees me. She's, and I go, hey, how you doing? Hello. <laughs> the hello that sounds like a buckshot, you know. Uh-huh. Hello. <laughs> you know. Like, so It's like, what has changed about me other than the fact that I got pretty colors on my eyeballs? Propaganda. What has changed? Mm -hmm. The propaganda that comes with it. Yep. The yep. danger. You know, since I walked out like this, that means your son's going to have a dress on by the end of the week. By the end of... I mean, that's that's too long, honestly. It says it's going to take you to the end of the week? Jeez. <laughs> so, um, I became acutely aware that I'll probably never have a teaching job here. Mm. You know? Um mm -hmm. So I'm going to be waiting tables for a little while, but I, I this is definitely going to be, I'm going to spend this time the way I agreed to spend this time, which is to work on my memoir and work on the second book of poetry. And then I'm going to have to be out. Yeah. So, cause I need to find a place where I don't feel this impending doom in being myself in public. Mm -hmm. Now I know the danger is everywhere, but when the danger is just, Chef's kiss apparent direct. Yeah. It lets me know that, okay, yeah, no, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And yeah, I feel that deeply 100%. Like, oh, when I go to my old neighborhood, I'm like, all right, I can't wear this. I can't wear that. I can't look like this. I got to. Nope, yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm. Yeah, I, I get nervous on TikTok when people from my past see me as I am now. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. But like, they don't matter. I haven't talked they to them don't. in decades. So why? But I'm like, I, I'm so still trapped in shame mm. 
mm-hmm. and inner homophobia that and it makes me angry mm-hmm. why ain't i on my own side oh why, why can't you defend yourself the way you defend every fucking body if you were accosted on that corner i'd have went out there and been like is there a problem <laughs> You know what I mean? Pick up the pants. Yo, partner, there a problem? Right, right, right. But me, you know, I, I'm like, okay, yeah, no. All right, have a good day. See you later. <laughs> well, you know, it's a lot easier for us to protect everybody else around us. I think, especially as uh, people coming up in, in the Black community, we are kind of taught to put other people ahead of ourselves. We're taught to look out for everybody else and then kind of forget about yourself. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we're I, I, we're trying to unlearn that. You know, I, I'm trying to help my mom, who is near sixty, unlearn that because she she needs That's to good luck with that. Huh? Good luck with that. Oh, I mean, it's kind of working. I'm kind of I'm getting there. We, you know, she's she's <laughs> realizing that she's got to work and love herself and and put herself first as well. But she raised four kids on her own, so she is now. I'm the youngest. I'm, you know, growing in on my own and doing my own thing and very successful in, in many things. And she's like, all right, now I got to find me. Yes. Yep. The snaps were implied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the snaps were implied. Um, so to just kind of, you kind of have given a beautiful, broad spectrum of yourself already, but introduce yourself to the people. Tell us who you are, what you're about. Tell us a little bit of your backstory. Oh, my God. Well, I come from a black father and white mother. Okay. Um, born and raised in New York City, Manhattan, um, you know, before Brooklyn was cool. Um, I will be 53 this month. So I'm like sort of in your mom's era. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I said good luck because teaching self-love to Gen X is just, you have to find a brick wall to beat your head against before you start, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. But uh, yep, my mom, uh, my dad, was a street hustler, didn't even know his own social security number. And my mom um, pretty much did everything. And there was a lot of violence, alcoholism, drug addiction, craziness, toxicity, until my mom finally ended up in jail when I was like 14. And uh, she ended up going to prison for uh, over a decade. Um, My dad eventually died of AIDS. my oldest brother froze to death because he had AIDS and had nowhere to go. Um, wow. My sister, I have a sister, Lori, who got strung out on crack back in the eighties and never left. She's still there now. Wow. Um, how is she still breathing? I don't know. She is your mom's age. She is 60 years old, 61. And she has been smoking crack since 1983. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, after a nuclear holocaust, there will be roaches, rats, and my sister. Like nothing will destroy this woman. She is indestructible. You know, um, I used to work with this guy. We called him the atomic trash rat because he would, he got shot once. He got held. Like so many things happened to him and he would just come back to work. Like, it's like, hey, you're an hour late. Oh, man, let me tell you what happened. <laughs> literally, literally. Um, and then I have one brother who's still alive as well. 
he is 10 years older than me. And, um, so he's, he's a little over 63 and, um, he's still drinking away his sexuality. Mm. Um, every single sibling I have is queer. Wow. Yeah. And How was that uh, growing up? Well, they weren't out. Um, my father was queer. And when my mother found out, she threw him out. That was, I was about three years old. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew something was funky. And my dad was at the door and my mom wouldn't let him in. And it was crazy. But my mom eventually told me she caught him with a man. Mm. And she ended the, the relationship. Um, so my siblings were queer and I wasn't. And uh, I, I always knew there was something strange about gender like i'm gender fluid mm -hmm. so there's always been something i've always been fascinated by eyeshadow i've always been fascinated by hair dryers and long skirts and like long nails and there was just something i i thought it was just this attractive this attraction to women uh -huh. but it was an attraction to femininity mm -hmm. and i kept um getting involved with women with you know the long nails and the makeup and the hair and the heels and the thigh highs and but somewhere in my head i couldn't stand her <laughs> but i loved the way she looked yeah you know and so i went from being this vain superficial guy that would only date women who looked this certain way mm -hmm. and then decades later I realized I didn't give a shit about being in a relationship. I just wanted the femininity. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't tell you how many times I was dating a woman and I would sit there while she was doing her makeup. And she's like, you're not bored. And I was like, Oh fuck. No, this is fascinating. I need to learn for the future. Like, okay, why are you doing that? Okay. What's this about? What's that? And I had no intentions on ever doing it. But I was fascinated by it. I mean, like 15, 16, 17. And Prince, child, Prince opened up. He kicked down doors for me. And it's you know, I was like, wait a minute. You can wear heels, mascara, eyeshadow, and still be with women? Man, ain't nobody tell me that. <laughs> I thought there was rules to this shit. And he was breaking rules. And when my mom found out I was fascinated by Prince, she had to sit me down and say, John, I you know I understand you like his music, but I'm going to tell you right now, ain't none of that faggot shit happening in this house. Because mm. she was already triggered. Yeah. Now we're talking about a woman who is a single mom with all them kids in the projects uh -huh. who ran an after hours club who shot a man once in the face for trying to rob said after hours club okay. who was 5'10, 360 pounds and had a short fuse hospitalized two of her own children from beatings. Oh my God. So when she looked at me and said, I need you to know, ain't no faggot shit happening in this house. Do you understand me? There's nothing else to say, but yes, ma'am. No faggot shit will happen. So when she found the Prince poster I had on the back of my room door of him with his legs up on the wall, wearing the heels, <laughs> uh -huh. 
the beating I thought lasted forever. Mm. And so I became hyper masculine after that. Even after she went to jail, I was I was hyper masculine. I was the gym two, three hours a day. I was, you know, washboard stomach, only dating dimes. Um just adhered strictly to the rules you know and so not until i went to rehab um about four years ago 20 2019 i went to rehab and i don't know how it happened but i was sitting in and with my therapist in rehab i was there three months and i just said you know, I've always wanted to cross-dress, but I'm afraid. And she said, what do you mean always? I said, I mean always. She said, well, how far back are we talking? I'm like, four. Like, I remember trying to put on my mom's stockings at four mm-hmm. and loving how it felt. And I remember, uh, I'm, oh, you're going to love this. Um, so I'm six and I have to take an IQ test. So I'm at school. I take this IQ test and the student kept saying to me, why do you keep crossing your legs? Why do you hold your hands like this? And I said, I don't know, you know, just how I am, you know? And so the therapist said, interesting. So they, the person given the test was very, you know, um, curious. So they talked to their professor, right? Cause this was a college student just running an IQ test. So the professor came and I was called down to this office again to do the same IQ test, but with this other guy in the room, white dude, you know, and uh, patches on the elbow it was the seventies. So, you know, this was the, you know, Oh, this is a Me white white guy. This is a real Mike Brady yeah. white guy, you know? So, uh-huh. and he's asking me to draw pictures and he's just talking to me about obscure just random shit and then uh he wants to talk to my mom now mind you this is 1976 so my mom has to take me to meet him at his office downtown so we go to the office and i go and i sit with him for a session of therapy and interesting enough this is how you know a kid is in trauma he asked me to draw a picture and somewhere in my little six-year-old brain i knew Whatever I drew in this picture, he would pick apart. Mm-hmm. So I drew the happiest picture I could think of on purpose with ulterior motives to manipulate the situation to let him know everything was okay. Mm. At six. So after the session, he calls my mother into his office. I'm sitting in the waiting room. This man told my mother, not only is your son gay, but he'll probably have a sex change by the time he has his 18th birthday. And my mother broke the bridge of his nose, sending him over his desk. Grabbed me by the arm and stormed out of the office and told everybody in the office, my son's no faggot. And stormed out of the office, practically dragging me by the arm. We get outside and my mother just stands on the street corner and just starts crying. Mm. And I was like, what did I do? I don't know what I, what just, like, I shut down. Mm-hmm. I shut down. I, I can't tell you for how long. I don't know how long. I shut down. I remember I just didn't have friends. I did everything by myself. 
I was very weary around my mom. Like I didn't want to be too close to her. My mom could give me these looks, you know, like, hi mom. She would go, Hey, how are you, honey? And it was like, okay, I don't, something happened, <laughs> but I, you know, don't know what. Yeah. And so then for the next, like, I don't know, 10 years, every time I said, mom, I need to talk to you about something. Her knee jerk reaction response was what? Are you gay? If you are, don't worry. I still love you. Don't worry about it. And I was like, no, mom, I need $5 to go to the roller rink. <laughs> <laughs> I need to decide if I'm gay. I'm gay. So I'm like 14. This is just before my mom goes to jail. And I cut school with three of my literal girlfriends, platonic girlfriends. And we cut school. We hang out at my house because my mom has a live-in job at the time. So my mom just stores food in the fridge. She comes home every Sunday. And so I, me and my friends decide we're going to cut school, hang out at my house, smoke some weed. And like, just have munchies and watch TV. And so we're all hanging out in our underwear. We're friends. I'm attracted to girls now, you know, but we're friends. I don't, you know, don't mess yeah. with my friends like that. And so being teenagers and doing dumb shit and being high, they decided they want to have a hickey contest. So I have three of my friends putting all these funny shaped hickeys all over my neck while we're watching TV, eating fried chicken and drinking iced tea. Mm -hmm. Well, my mom decides to come home and check on me. My mom walks in and sees me with three girls, all of us in our underwear, hickeys all over me. And she doesn't make it even 100% into the living room before she goes, oh, no, don't worry. I'll come back later. She was like, my son, I'm going to got three bitches. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. My friends thought they were going to die because, you know, parents hit your, you know, your friends got beat too. So, yeah. And we all were like, yo, where did your mom go? And I'm like, I don't know. I get dressed. I run outside. The car is gone. She goes back to work. She was like, nothing to see here. And we never, we never spoke about it again. Wow. Wow. And I didn't put two and two together until way later i was like oh she was just relieved so she was in jail and i was addicted to heroin and when i went to get clean i went to visit her in jail and i had to tell her because she had no idea it was while she was in jail i got addicted and i was like mom you know i've been shooting heroin but when i first said mom i need to talk to you we're in between the glass you know and she's like with the phone she goes what are you gay if you're gay just tell me and i was like ah. I'm not gay. Um, but I've been shooting heroin. My mother, during the AIDS epidemic, my mother says, just knee-jerk reaction as usual. Oh, thank God. Mm. Mm. You know, that's not... That's not the response that you look for when you tell your mom <laughs> you've been shooting heroin. Like, especially in the height of the AIDS epidemic. Like... Thank God. Because mind you, now this is uh, 1986. Mm -hmm. AIDS is wiping out my community. Yes. Right? I live in an of-color community. Queer people are dying. All my friends in New York City are dying. Um, and 
my mother was just grateful that I wasn't gay because back then we said only gay people are dying mm-hmm. of the virus, even though junkies, you know, I was going to narcotics anonymous meetings at the time and we were losing members left and right. I was going to three funerals a week. Yeah. Uh, in 86. So well, for my mother to go, Oh, thank God. I was like, is it that bad to be gay? Like, is it that bad? Like that bad? And so in my head, I think my inner homophobia was like, yeah, thank God. Mm-hmm. And so I came to better conclusions about, well, then nobody would want to be gay. Like nobody would want this kind of pariah label thrown on them. Yeah. So it can't I mean- be a choice. It can't be a choice like that. That's I think I was 16 when I came to the conclusion. It can't be a choice. Nobody would want this, you know, and I think being an addict helped me to see that because being an addict also was not a choice. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh, they're just born that way. But of course, it being the 80s, I said, oh, it must be a birth defect. Because something has to justify it, even though you're born that way. Good. Right. Yeah. It's not a good thing. Clearly, by what society says, it's not a good thing. So, oh, those poor gay people. That must suck. I feel so sorry for them. And so, flash forward 30 years, you know, for almost 40 years, and I'm coming out and coming into my own. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, fuck, I'm damn, I'm one of those poor gay people. I'm one of those poor, you know, pan people. I'm one of those poor bi people. And like, shit, fuck. Yeah, like I was mad. Yeah. When I came to the conclusion I was gender fluid, it was not a celebration. All I could think of was the volatile existence that is being queer in the United States. Mm. Like, that's all I could think about was this is not going to be fun. And it explains why queer people party so hard. Cause I'm like, child, get it in when you can, you know? Yeah. Cause you know, it, you never know. You absolutely never know. I went to a, a, a queer club last night for the first time in this area. And evidently that's where everybody goes. Cause I don't see none of these motherfuckers all week. And now all of a sudden here they are all in this one club. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> y'all just, everybody's incognito out here. They all hiding it mm-hmm. until they come to this club. And the club is, uh, the glass on the front is frosted. The door is frosted, you know, downstairs is like a regular lounge for everybody. And then you go upstairs if you're queer, queer, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, so then I went, and I was like, oh. And then I, I, was, I wasn't there more than an hour, and I grew depressed. I was like, so the only time everybody here can be themselves is in this place on a Saturday night. So mm. what the fuck do you do the rest of the week? Yeah, how are you surviving the rest of the week? How are you? I, you know, I wasn't in the closet for very long. I came out at 18. I'm 30 now. I felt like I was suffocating, suffocating while I was in the closet. And even, you know, to now being a, you know, kind of gender fluid, gender nonconforming, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, wearing makeup, 
getting my nails done, having my beard dyed a different color, like all these things that I do now, even before this, I felt suffocated. Even before I felt like I could truly express my gender, my identity, who I am, I still felt suffocated. So I couldn't imagine living an entire life in a place where I couldn't at least kind of be like, here's one little thing. Here's one little glitter on the lid. Yeah. Not too much. Yeah. Here's me painting my nails black. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. It's not nothing crazy. You know, I'm goth. <laughs> I'm emo. I, I just, eyeliner. You know what's odd is that since I started wearing eyeshadow, my urges to use other drugs has almost dissipated. Without meetings, without a 12-step fellowship, without a sponsor, without going to therapy, I literally, I still have the thought, but now I'm like, eh, no, I'll go home. Whereas 2019, there's no question. I was getting high 24 hours a day. Mm. But since I've come out, I actually want to live. And I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm looking back on decades of using and I'm like, bitch, if you would have put that eyeshadow on when you were 17, you would not be in this predicament right now. If you had just listened to Prince and put a little, just a little cold liner on the waterline. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I was so scared to come out because the eighties forget AIDS. AIDS was not your biggest threat. It was gay bashings. Mm -hmm. You could be coming out of a queer club or from a queer community area in New York City, turn a corner, and there were four white dudes and two white girls with bats. You know, people in suspenders with bald heads. And like, they were looking to do damage. And they were roaming around the queer community. So like, I wasn't going to no damn ball. Uh-uh. Yeah. Uh -oh. I was like, no, nah, I got to take the train afterwards. Nah, son. <laughs> so, and I had, I had gay friends who like I hung out with on the regular. And it was like my way of warming up to the idea. So I spent a lot of time around them and with them going to their homes, hanging out with them, spending all days, weekends, whatever. But I never qualified myself as part of the community mm -hmm. I, you know before we used the word ally i was thinking ally mentality like oh no they cool they with me they're my friends yeah but i still saw their issues and struggles separate from mine mm -hmm. you know and so now whenever somebody compliments me on my makeup whenever somebody says oh my god i love that skirt da, 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 whatever you know my, your earrings i love your earrings I say thank you, but I don't feel good because I didn't get in the fight when people needed me to back in the 80s and 90s. I, I hear that, and I want to I wanna respond to that with, but you're in the fight now, and that's all that matters. And I understand how, well, I actually, I can't, even quantify how it feels to have lost so many friends and so many close people to you during that time. 
But you have to know that they see what you're doing now. And they see how beautiful of a person you are now. And they're cheering you on. They're in your corner always. And they love you for being in the fight now. Yeah, I think that um, I have a hard time being happy because I have a hard time forgiving myself for living in my privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, and even as I sit here emotional, in my head, I'm telling myself I don't even deserve the grief and the regret that I'm feeling right now. Like, it's tantamount to me talking to somebody who is also biracial, but who's been living as a white person. Mm -hmm. And they feel bad. And I'm like, oh, yeah, poor fucking you. Yeah, I'm sorry you feel bad. But meanwhile, our siblings who are darker, they've been struggling. Yeah. So, you know, you, you get no pity. So from that same point, that same perspective, I tell that same shit to myself. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you don't, you don't get to feel bad. You don't, you don't get to feel, you did nothing. Like when people were struggling and dying and homophobia was at this peak, you did nothing. Not one protest, not, you didn't stand up for shit. Your friends were, you know, and so like now I'm getting all the rewards for being queer. Cause it's, it's a little cool. It's a little trendy. It's the thing. Yeah. So mm -hmm. like now I'm getting accolades for it. And I feel like an imposter because I didn't do the work. I'm reaping the rewards of all the work that other queer people have done over the decades. Right? Mm -hmm. So now, yeah, I got 420,000 followers on TikTok. Now I got 5K followers on Instagram and everyone loves to talk to the gender fluid academic. But, you know, I... Yeah. Yeah, that's that's like I'm at a dead end there. That's that's yeah. about it. I hear I hear that and I I can't talk away how you feel because that's how you feel and that's your truth. But I do as a queer person, as somebody who has who fights the fight daily and who has for some time, I think it's it's important to meet yourself where you are, especially when you're queer. Like a lot of us spend, you know, I have friends whose fam family, like dads, moms, parents, everybody didn't come out until they were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s mm -hmm. and have this exact same feeling of almost survi survivor's guilt. You know, I survived the AIDS epidemic. I survived all the gay bashings, but it's a, tr it's like trauma kept you in the closet. Trauma kept you locked up tight because you were afraid. And on top of the trauma, there's the fear of being killed for just being who you are. Right. So I, yeah, like well, I, I remember in college, I, it was the first transgender studies class ever in the country at Virginia Commonwealth university. And I took the class and um, I took the class out of sheer curiosity. Right. Cause I wanted to understand. Mm -hmm. um, I had just started taking uh, feminist classes. So, um, this subject came up, um, Munoz, right? Um, an academic by the name of Munoz wrote about disidentification, which is basically staying in the closet, right? Uh -huh. It was this really beautiful academic word for like hiding. And 
using it as a survival mechanism and kind of trying to come to understanding and kind of letting a lot of queer people off the hook because it's fucking dangerous to be out. It so I, I saw it and I identified it. And when I identified that that was in me, I wasn't ready. I was 40. I wasn't ready. This is not what I, you know, it was like, no, I was like 44. And I was like, Ooh, I don't want to, Ooh, shit. Not ready for that. Shit. I thought this was over. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I thought mm-hmm. I put this shit away in the eighties, you know? <laughs> and it was like, here it is again. Um, and so it's, it's been a road. It's taken me, you know, reading and educating myself and, and asking myself the uncomfortable questions. And, um, so now I'm here, I'm at this place and I'm facing my inner homophobia, inner homophobia, but I didn't think it'd be this hard to get rid of it. I thought, I really thought that once I put on the makeup, it was done. Yeah. I, um, my partner introduced me to drag. I, of course, had seen drag, had, um, I, I didn't know any drag queens, but I knew of drag. I knew drag was a thing that existed. But I always was like, well, I'm not that gay. Like, I like boys, but I'm not like, I'm not going to a drag show. Yeah, like, I'm, <laughs> I all, that was always the thing I would say whenever somebody asked, do you watch Drag Race? Do you like drag shows? Do you go to, you know, to the blah, blah, blah? I'm like, oh, I'm not that gay. I, that's cool, but that's not for me. And the second I watched, because I, like you, have always been fascinated by women, specifically femininity. I Mm -hmm. love femininity. I love it on myself. I love it on other people. I think women get more fun. Like, women get to have more fun with their clothes. I look through, like, websites. I'm like, oh, this is so cute. This is so cute. This is so cute. And then I look in the men's clothes, and I'm like, another pair of pants. Another (laughs) T-shirt. This is cool, I guess. But I want to wear this cute flow. Like, I've always been that way, too. I think that I have a, a memory of walking around the, the kitchen in my mom's heels because I like to hear the clack, clack, clack. And, <laughs> and so, where was I going? What was my point? Um, <laughs> I lost myself in that story. That's so well, I told you, I, I thought it was going to be easier once I put on the makeup. Yes, the there we go. Yes. And so, like, once I, you know, I was like, once I came out and I have a boyfriend, okay, now I am as gay as I will ever be. I am bisexual canonically. But now I am in a homosexual relationship. I'm dating a man. This is as gay as it will get. And then I watched Drag Race and I was like, huh. It might get a little gay from here. And I had to address that part of myself that was like, why am I not that gay? It, what, what more? Sir, you already put the penis in your mouth. I don't think it get no gayer than that. Like, it... it <clears throat> wearing makeup and doing and watching drag race and doing all these things that are feminine or or hyper gay don't it doesn't change the label it doesn't change who you are and so it took me a really long time too to get to that point of all right and i'm fortunate to have grown up with a mom who was super accepting with fam my whole entire family every single person in my family well most of the people in my family um <laughs> are like we love you for who you are where you are it's not a tolerance. It is a true, total love. They've taken my boyfriend into their life. Like, so I'm fortunate. I had a very easy coming out and, and acceptance of myself in every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Started 
wearing makeup. And my mom was like, what made you want to wear makeup? And I was like, well, I've kind of always wanted to. And she was like, okay, work. You look good. Yes, bitch. My mom is the first one to comment on my post. She's, yes, bitch, you better work. <laughs> I love you, lady. So, you know, it's, everybody's story is always so different. And especially when it comes to being queer and gender fluid and like, mm-hmm traditionally feminine, traditionally masculine things. You know, I really thought that my siblings, I, I spoke to them on, on video call um, for the first time a couple of years ago. And I thought my brother was going to flip the fuck out. My brother was has been angry his whole life, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's beat every girlfriend and wife he's ever had. Um, when he did get the virus get the virus from being with men Mm -hmm. um he started dating women again and didn't tell them oh wow yeah like angry hated women and i have always believed he hated women because he was trans Mm. and couldn't be one and i think it was more of a jealousy thing than anything else and we finally talked about it two years ago when he's like, you know, I swing both ways too, little brother. And because I was like, I was wearing makeup. I said, yeah, I guess you see the makeup now. He goes, I swing both ways too, little brother. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, why you got to say that like such a dude? You know, <laughs> like, I'm still a man, but I like men, you know. And I was like, I'm not arguing with you. You don't have to be defensive, you know. And he's struggled mm-hmm. with being himself whoever that is i still don't know yet but he's still he carries a bottle of gin in his back pocket and he's just drinking himself to death still sleeps with women when he gets drunk and tries to convince himself that this is where he belongs and i'm i can't say anything i'm just you know waiting and i'm like maybe before you die you will allow yourself to be yourself Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's right for me to say dude just fucking date men and get it over with or be like, how you doing? You know? Mm-hmm. And then my sister, same way, my sister saw the makeup. She's like, oh, you wear makeup? Oh, you out? Oh, it's about time. And I was like, wait, what do you mean about time? How come nobody told me? You know? <laughs> That's how it, it always better. is. Like, no one ever said it was okay. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Yeah. All right, y'all, we're going to take a short break and hear a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Mental Health Chat Monday is brought to you by BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, the world's largest 100% online therapy service, you can get connected with a therapist and a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists to help you with a wide range of issues. When I signed up for BetterHelp, I was able to specify exactly what I was looking for in a therapist, and I was matched with a therapist that suited my needs. To get started, all you do is answer a few questions about your therapy needs and preferences. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the perfect therapist from their network. From there, contacting your therapist is easy. Call, chat, video call, or text. Whatever is more comfortable for you. Message your therapist at any time to set up live sessions when it's convenient for you. And the coolest thing about BetterHelp is that if your therapist doesn't match for any reason at all, you can switch to a brand new therapist at no additional charge. Affordability, online access at your own pace, custom pick therapists, 
that sounds like my kind of therapy. And what luck you have. You can get 10% off your very first month of BetterHelp using my link, betterhelp.com forward slash M-H-C-M. That's betterhelp.com forward slash M-H-C-M. Now go ahead and get yourself some therapy, baby. And thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. All right, y'all. We are back from our little break. Thank you to our sponsor. Um, yeah, do the thing and the click in the thing. <laughs> That's the, the curse of having a pre-recorded um, sponsor message. Um, so I'm going to kind of jump around. Um, you talked a little bit about going into rehab and. I want to kind of tie this back into mental health because obviously that's the the point of the podcast. Right. Where were you in 2019 mental health wise? And what was the thing that drove you to, not drove you, but led you to seeking help? Um, I started using with someone who I used to be a mentor for, for poetry. Oh, wow. And... I just never forgave myself for getting them started. Mm. You know, um, they were like, look, if, if you're not going to go get it for me, I'll go get it myself. And I thought you'll die. You don't know what you're doing. You'll die. Mm. So I started getting high with them and truth be told, I was lonely. So it was a nice idea to get high with somebody I actually liked. Mm -hmm. Um, but that quickly turned bad. And I got catatonic. My depression got so bad that I just sat or just laid in bed, stopped showering, stopped eating, just miserable, just absolutely. It wasn't even like sadness. It was just nothing. I wasn't. I grew suicidal. And when I grew suicidal, it was the scariest thing because it wasn't this overwhelming sadness. I didn't cry at all. I was just tired, mm -hmm. you know, and everything seemed useless and monotonous. Yep. Like, what's the point of going to work? What's the point of smiling? What's the point of having friends? What's that? There's no point to any of this because at the end of the, the Venn diagram, I still end up by myself with all of these memories, with all of this trauma. So I can't get rid of the memories or the trauma. My brain won't stop. So maybe I should just go back to heroin. At the time I was smoking crack and drinking and smoking weed. And I refused to do heroin. And then like this one day I was like, you know, maybe tomorrow when I get paid, I'm just going to do some heroin. And something in my head clicked. And all of a sudden, I turned to the person next to me and said, can you drive me to the hospital? Mm. Where it came from, I don't know. I get to the hospital. I tell them I'm suicidal. They take me up to the floor. And I have, I have many, many ER visits for depression. Many for suicidal thoughts. Um, and I think it's a survival instinct. Mm-hmm. Because I know I'm about to die. I know I'm about to kill myself. Mm -hmm. So I all of a sudden become my worst enemy and I go to the hospital. Because at the end of the day, I ain't dying for nobody. 
Not even me. <laughs> so I went to the hospital, and as soon as they take me up to the floor, I said, you guys, last time I was here, you were talking about rehab. I've never gone. I want to go. And it was my first time ever going to rehab. So I went. And um, I was miserable the first week. Angry, bitter. Um, thinking this was a dumb idea. I'm just going to fuck up my life anyway afterwards. But after about a month, um, I started to take it in, you know. And then I was in... For the first time ever in rehab, I had never been in a completely safe, drug-free environment 24 hours a day. Never. So, all of a sudden, there was no drugs to run to with whatever thought I was having. Instead, I was talking to counselors and therapists. So, I started talking about shit I had never talked about. My mother's suicide. Never spoke about it. I never talked about, you know, my therapist was like, I was going down this list and my, mother, and my therapist was like, what do you mean your mom killed herself? I was like, oh, yeah, that happened. To the... And they were like, John, what do you, let's talk about that. I'm like, for what? It happened. Yeah. You know, my mm -hmm. Gen X thing, you know, get over it. And they were like, no, 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 John, we could talk about this. And so we talked about it. And, you know, I brought up, you know, sometimes I want to wear makeup. And they were like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and I was like, what? And they were like, what do you mean you want to wear makeup? Like, we should. Let's unpack that. I'm like, for what? Oh, God. You know, and there were things about myself I had been ignoring mm -hmm. because I learned from the people who loved me to just ignore that stuff about John. Mm -hmm. So what I thought were endless, ceaseless ramblings of a scatterbrain were actually these poignant perspectives that i had never given attention to and so like i started to rediscover myself and then after i was there about a month and started talking about all this stuff i crabbed my bed sheet and took a walk at four in the morning looking for a proper treat branch mm. because i had again concluded this is never going to end it's just never going to fucking end like no matter how long i'm clean no matter what book i read at the end of the day i can't stop thinking about everything i've been through and a counselor what thank god walking the property was like blake what are you doing and this is how deep into my catatonic state i was again i just nonchalantly said looking for a good tree have my bed sheet like a towel, like a beach towel <laughs> around my neck. And I said, looking for a good tree. And he goes, are you serious? And I said, who would joke about that? And he goes, oh, come on, man. Come on, come here. Let me talk to you. And he, he got, he gave me some coffee and in rehab to get real coffee at four o'clock in the morning on rehab. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you got coffee? Coffee. All right. So coffee and cigarettes. Oh, shit, you ain't, man, you ain't said nothing. So we started talking. I didn't realize that the whole time he's texting the director of the rehab and we're having this conversation until the sun comes up until somebody fucking gets there. And then I'm surrounded by a psychiatrist and another psychologist and my therapist. And for the first time ever in my life, I'm taking antidepressants. Mm. And 
I took my first real dose that was going to open up some stuff. And 20 minutes later, my whole world changed. I had no idea that I had been through so much trauma that it literally shut off the natural epinephrine I need to be excited, to be happy, to be angry. The, the adrenaline that you need to get up. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have it. I never had it. My brain shut that part of it, just shut it down so long ago that I just didn't, I was never emotionally invested in anything. I was kind of just going through the motions. And I felt like when it, when you watch things about serial killers and how they mirror other people's behavior because they don't have it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh shit. Like I walked into a room and whoever I was around, I talked like them, behaved like them, felt like them, thought like them for that time. And then 15 minutes later, I'm talking to somebody else and my whole personality changed because I didn't know how to be me. Because if I was honest, I didn't want to be at the fucking party anyway. So I thought I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And then after taking antidepressants, I started doing what I wanted to do. And it was amazing. Like, I didn't know that it was okay to not want to be around people. I didn't know it was okay to not agree, to not like somebody. I didn't know that even though someone never did anything wrong to you, you could still not like them. Mm. You know, I had zero boundaries, zero boundaries, settled for almost every relationship I'd ever been in. And so learned all of this in rehab in three months. I learned in three months what I should have learned over the last 40 plus years. Right. And so there I was in 2020 moved. I was living in Richmond, Virginia, went to rehab in Florida and a friend of mine in Albuquerque said, well, you know, you come stay here and start over. And I got there on, I think March 6th and then March 8th, the pandemic happened. Mm. And so for two years with everything I learned in rehab, I found myself sitting with everything. I didn't stay clean. I stayed clean for like close to a year. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the protruding thoughts and I stopped taking my antidepressants. And it all started coming back, you know, and I eventually got clean again and then moved to LA, you know, but then I got to this place where it wasn't okay to be me. And I started drinking and it was just a horrible existence. I was going to have to work two full-time jobs to keep up with rent. And, um, I wasn't depressed but I did feel um, hopeless. I I don't know if hopeless is the right word, but Mm -hmm. I felt like, I felt like that fucking robot we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Like this, it for what? Like for what? Like what's so great about living in LA if I have to work two full-time fucking jobs to stay here and I don't get to have any of those experiences. Like, I'm here, but I'm not really doing anything. Yeah, you're just um, here to work. 
Yeah. And so I was like, yeah, no. And then I realized I didn't want to exist the way I was existing. And here was the epiphany. I went, oh, I'm not the problem. Because my whole life, I've taken on the burdens. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm in LA. I'm by myself. I'm not in a relationship. I don't have any close friends. So now I'm having all of these negative feelings and cynicism. Cynicism. That's what I'm not hopelessness, but definitely cynicism. Yeah. And then it came to me. Oh, this shit ain't me. It's not me. It's this. It's not even the other people. It's the system. And once I had that epiphany, I felt better. You're not crazy. Like that, that whole joke about paranoia. No, the good news is you're not paranoid. The bad news is people are out to get you. Like you have every reason to be paranoid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. like nobody's out to get you, but this system will send someone. You know, <laughs> they're on this, speed dial. Yeah. yeah, this system does not want you to further your queer black causes, mm -hmm. and that's why you feel so alone every fucking where you go, because they don't make room for your ass. That's why you're the only person walking through the mall in this skirt. That's why you're the only man in your whole neighborhood who has eyeshadow on because there are others, but they're scared. Mm -hmm. And so like, I thought about all of that this morning when I left the house, like that's the kind of stuff I was not everything in detail, but that's the kind of stuff that went through my head. And I've, it's this really, really interesting experience that you have once you come into yourself, uh, especially living somewhere that doesn't accept you, doesn't allow you to be who you are, doesn't allow you to thrive in the way that you need to. It's so painful and it makes you want to run and you continue running and running and running and running and you're just, you're chasing what you think is safety or freedom or, but what you're really chasing is just a deep breath. Just the... Yeah. Oh, I want to be able to just exist. I just want to live. I want a psychological vacation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that feeling before, right? Mm -hmm. And I could be, you know, in the bathroom at work. Like, I don't have to be at a beach. I don't have to be at a, at a resort. Like, I need a vacation from what's going on around me, you mm -hmm. know? And, and... Oftentimes, I lie to myself and say, I just need to be away from people. It's not people. I need the system to change. I just need the system to change. Yeah. I, need, I need the, 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 uh, the powers that be to tell people to let me live. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't want it to be the status quo to hate and oppress others. And that's the status quo. It's a pecking order and I need it to be gone. Yeah. I feel and that. I think that's where my vacation is. My, and you know what? Um, until that day, look, look, wait, wait, look, if I ain't nobody going on vacation then. As long as these, as long as these cogs are grinding, 
As long as this machine is up and running, this ain't nobody getting a break up in here. Yep. That's that's where I have found my relief. That's that's you know in in this. Uh, exclamation in this exclamation mm-hmm. in this stand in this demanding things to be different that's where i have found my power yeah i didn't I, think that's where and it's the one thing i never talked about i never stood up for myself i never made a stand you know i stayed in the closet and everybody else was fighting the fight and it's like now i'm like oh that's why you're depressed because you're not being your true self and your true self has always been about right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Like I've always, my whole life, I, I, my, I used to be, I used to drive my mother crazy because I was just five and six and seven years old and intelligent and reading. And I would read like encyclopedias and I was like, mom, why do we have war? And my mother was like, oh Jesus, John, oh. this boy. He doesn't ask, like, you know, why does Santa come through the chimney? Why didn't he just knock on the door? No. I'm like, but why do we have atom bombs? Why do we need that? Yeah. And my mother was like, N-word? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my mom had that special. She was a white woman, but she had that special privilege of using the N-word back in the 70s because she was Uh part of that community. We don't do that now. But back then we did. Uh-huh. And my mother would look at me and go, "Hey, Murray, I don't know. Why you ask me all these hard ass questions? <laughs> ask me where broccoli comes from, like a normal kid. Like just, damn, John be, you know, John be asking hard questions, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I found there's some relief in joining the fight. There's actually some relief because now I'm being my authentic self. I didn't know that that's what was missing, but I feel a little better mm-hmm. taking that walk today through Bryan, Texas in makeup. I... Even though it was frightening, it was like, okay, maybe a little bit more next time. You know, maybe, I don't know. I'm looking at my skirts like, I don't know, you know, but it yeah. is what it is, you know? I, and I appreciate your stand in your fight and what you are doing for the community. And, you know, it's it takes one person sometimes. It takes just one person to make one other person think differently. And, hey, what do you know? You might be the one person in your complex to be like, you know what? You look beautiful. I think more people should look like that. Yeah, I, I keep feel... thinking that some, somewhere there's a teenage boy <laughs> who is, in fact, a they them. Uh-huh. Steve me and goes, wait a minute. He could wear eyeshadow and he has 400,000 followers. Listen, it's the eyeshadow that brought the followers. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think about that sometimes when I do my makeup videos. I'm like, I, when I started. TikTok, I was like, okay, I'll do transitions and makeup and stuff because I was on that journey and like improvement and whatever. And now I don't enjoy doing it as much. I prefer to do more like talking and, and you, know, uh-huh. little, you know, stuff like this. Um, but I think about when I first started my TikTok and how quickly 
it grew from just putting on a little splash of makeup. And I'm like, that's all it took. Just a little, little cut crease. And they weren't even good back then, back when I first started. I wasn't looking good. I was busted. But people are like, you should do makeup tutorials. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm winging it. I am winging I'm like, it. You take the brush, you put it in here, you do this, and you're done. Like, you it all and you blend. Um, so moving on just a little bit. So uh we've we've kind of cr- covered the gamut of things in this this mental health chat Monday episode. Uh I did It's your really- fault too, because you don't you don't ground me. You just let me go. And so I just oh. But I like I like to listen. I'm a listener by nature. And so okay. I you know, i I might feel a moment where I'm like, oh I wanna I wanna jump, but I just especially when the story is so rich and so full of life and somebody's going to get something from what you have said in this whole entire episode. I already know that. And there's no need for me to interrupt you with a question to be like, Oh, uh, what, what, what medicines are you taking right now? Like nobody, that, that's not that in other episodes, that is the importance. But in this episode, I feel like the importance has, has boiled itself down to be yourself. And no matter how long your journey takes and no matter what your journey is, you will end up exactly where you need to be. Mm. That's the energy I have received from, and I just got a chill down my spine. So somebody just told me I was right. (laughs) Yeah, you are right. I just wish I knew that shit 30 years ago. Well, it, it, I want to do over. (laughs) <laughs> well, next time around, next go around, next go around. No, you got it now, and you got plenty of time to run with it. Um, I was actually about to ask you a question, and I forgot what it was. Um, so on mental rounding out this 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 video call on mental health chat Monday, we have a motto, and and that is turning mental illness into mental wellness. What does mental wellness look like to you? Oof. I don't know if most people are capable with starting with honesty. Mm. Right? Ooh. I there are people who, I mean when you when you've been told a lie for so long, mm-hmm. it's not you're not gonna overnight start telling yourself or anybody else the truth, right? Because there's a lot of shame to work through first. What I found is a great place to start, and I learned it in rehab was radical acceptance. Mm. I've heard this before. It's 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 the gateway to honesty, right? Because um I found that accepting something for what it is without deciding whether it's good or bad. We're not we're not there yet, right? Because that's that's more honesty. Yeah. Now the first way to practice being honest is to say this is a cigarette. We're not going to talk about whether cigarettes are healthy or not, but we're going to start with, this is a cigarette. Okay. And then eventually you get to a place of, do you want to quit? Not good or bad. No judgment. Do you want to quit? No, I don't. Okay. We're that's it. No Mm -hmm. further lecture, no further thoughts, no pontification on it. I like smoking and those were the kind of places that had to start. Your mother's dead. Whether she killed herself or not, whatever. Yes, your mother killed herself. Okay. 
That's a fact. Mm-hmm. We're not going to deal with how sad that is, how manipulated I felt, my anger or resentment with that. We're just going to say, this is what happened. Because over the years, you know, oh, my mom died. She died, you know, in 2003. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's part true. Mm-hmm. The other part is she killed herself. So can we just say that? Yeah. You know, can we say, um, I got married because I was getting older and I was afraid to die alone. Mm. Can we admit that? Not good or bad, no judgment. Let's just speak the truth. I knew my wife was cheating and I didn't care because I didn't want to die alone. Mm. That's all. I'm not going to talk about whether you're weak emotionally or whether you don't have boundary. None of that matters. But if you don't start dealing with the truth of your life, you're not going to get any better. So first I had to start with facts and details. And then we could be honest about how do you feel about that? You know, what are your thoughts? Is that why you act like this when that thought comes? You know, is that why you're motivated to be around these type of people? You know, and then after a while, it got to a point to where, oh, I love dating narcissists because I never have to talk about me. Mm. Oh, that's deep. Oh, I'll tell you, look, I'm not a Dr. Phil fan. But one thing that dude used to always say was you wouldn't be there if there wasn't a payoff. What is the payoff? And I was like. No, I just got low self-esteem. There's no payoff in being with a narcissist. There's none. Or is there? And I realized when I was on a college campus, there were so many people who thought they were my friend. Really? (laughs) Yeah, we're friends. And I thought about the many conversations I had with these people for hours, the way you and I are talking right now. I never talked about me. I just let them do all the talking. Mm. And when they felt better, we're bonded now. We're friends. We're connected as far as they were concerned because they were in touch with intimacy. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. There was this whole big shame shield around me. So it kind of bounced off. I was listening. I spoke. I responded. But I wasn't emotionally invested in the conversation afterwards during i'm emotionally invested i care i'm concerned i want to know how you're doing hey have you tried this well why don't you go talk to this person very helpful very helpful indeed but that's only because in my head that's my job Mm -hmm. so they walked away like oh john me and him are like this and i was like i still don't even know your number i don't even know your last name you ain't saving on my phone i don't know if you have both your parents i don't know nothing about you but I also didn't talk about me. So being with a narcissist was like, well, yeah, I never have to become intimate because they don't want intimacy. They just want somebody to tell them how great they are. Mm-hmm. So this is easy. It's easy for me to be with a narcissist. And I had to accept that I was also manipulating. Mm-hmm. I convinced this narcissist that I actually care about them. When the truth is, they're faceless. 
it's just another body in my house and I don't have to be alone. And it's kind of like having family. And that's something I've always wanted, at least the appearance of it, you know, it's lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig, you know? Yeah. And so I've been single for years <laughs> because I still don't know how to be intimate with other people. I still don't know. I don't know how to let my guard down and just allow someone's opinions of me to be a part of my life. Mm -hmm. I've found safe people whose opinions of me are a beautiful place, but I haven't been able to embrace them and mutually give that same thing back. I don't know how to do it. And again, no judgment, good or bad, not saying, but this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first step in being honest is when I take away the judgment and just say, you know, uh, call a thing a thing, beloved, you know, <laughs> you know, and uh, that has helped me get to where I am right now. I don't know what the next steps are, but definitely a good sign of that I'm moving towards wellness is that I'm able to tell the truth because I've removed the next step in the pattern. I've changed the pattern. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The pattern is I'm lonely. Let me go find somebody is the next step. Now it's I'm lonely. We're not going to make a judgment on that. We're not going to try and fix it. We're not going to run right to solution like a fixer does. No, we are going to say, well, loneliness is an inability to enjoy one's own company. Mm. So why don't you enjoy your own company? Let's start there. Oh, because I don't think I deserve it. I don't think I deserve joy because of the what i consider the plethora of people that i have hurt harmed neglected directly or indirectly in some way shape form or fashion and i don't know how to let myself out of jail like i feel like if you harm someone you don't get to decide when you feel better And that's tough, right? Because at some point I deserve to move forward and move on and enjoy my life. I just don't know when that day's coming. Yeah, it is coming soon. (laughs) I know, of course, auto response, whatever you want to call it, but it is, you know, you are doing such hard work to get to that day so it feels like you think i'll tell you what it feels like it feels like because i agree with you right but it feels like i'm in the movie theater and the coming attractions are on and it's a marvel movie and it's gonna be fucking dope it Uh is like infinity times 10 it's like end game on steroids and then it's like premieres spring 2028 it's like what you know like holding out individually all of that 
And then that shit ain't coming for another five years. You know, so that, that's how I feel. I feel like, oh man, it's going to be beautiful. But shit, bro, it's going to be a minute. Yeah. <laughs> the wait is always harder than the journey. Like once you start healing, and nobody tells you how much healing hurts. I think that is the one true thing. I think I have said that in almost every episode or every episode where I've talked about healing. Nobody tells you how much that shit hurts. Mm. Not a single person is like, yeah, everybody's like, healing is so beautiful. Once you've healed, you'll feel so much better. Da, 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 da. Nobody talks about all of the shit you have to swim through. Mm-hmm. All of the knives and the salt and the wounds and the things that you have to open back up that you thought you tucked away for so Nobody talks about that. And that's a, one of the points of this podcast is to let people know. I want everybody to heal. I want everybody to, to grow and feel loved and love themselves, most importantly. But I also want you to know that it takes time and it hurts. Woo! It's a pain that you will never feel physically, ever. Spiritual like pain the- hurts so much more than physical pain. Like, look, it's like one of them Dungeons and Dragons movies where, like, you get to the dark forest uh-huh. and they're like, okay, from this point, are you sure? <laughs> yep. Because you're going to find out what you are made of. You're going to uh-huh. find out just how bad you want that ring. You're going to find out right now. Yeah. You, you, you sure you want to heal? Because you think it's about talking about what other people did to you. Nope. When you find out that it's about what you did to you uh-huh. and what you did to allow other people to do that shit to you, ooh, you, like, you're going to be sitting next to yourself going, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and the best part That's is once you shit. start, you can't stop. Once you, get, once you start on the path, you can try to regress, but all that healing that you've done up to that point, it's going to be like, but you've done all this work. Why would you stop now? You, and you know... When I used to go to 12 Step Fellowships, they would say, you know, 12 Step Fellowships ruin your high. Mm. Because, you know, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can't go back to being a cucumber. Uh-huh. So, like, once you know, <laughs> once you know, you can't unknow that shit. So, like, the times that I relapsed, it's short-lived. Because I can't go back to that oblivious, clueless, just getting high, man, fuck this world. Because in my head, I know. You know, you ain't got no business in this fucking crack house. Mm-hmm. You know damn well, you ain't got no business sitting at this bar. John, what are you doing? While I'm sitting there using or drinking. Everybody's like, hey, John. I'm like, hey, how you doing? In my head, I'm like, motherfucker. If you don't take your ass home. You know, and so this whole discussion of, of healing that being honest with yourself piece, mm-hmm. you know, why did you date her? Why did you move there? You know, I had to, I had to say the ugly, everything ugly, nothing pretty. I had to talk about it. I had yeah. to say it to myself and you know, Definitely had to say it to somebody else. It 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 dies in the light. So yeah. you have to you have to talk about it with somebody else. And that's why getting rid of the judgment has to be paramount because shame is a fear of exposure. Mm-hmm. And if you can't bring yourself to say it around someone else, you're never gonna get better. 
Ever. It's never going to get better. Never. No. Never. Pick a safe person, but... <laughs> yeah, choose wisely. Follow your intuition. But also, you have to say it. Uh, so what I did was I chose TikTok. Because, you know, it, it's... There are safe people. Mm-hmm. And there are unsafe people who will leave a negative comment, but that's not what I'm invested in. And so many people have said to me, God, you are so honest. I wish I could be that. I'm just not that honest. And, and I'm like, oh, so you think I was, oh, man, my wife looked at me five years ago and was like, is there anything that you told the truth about? <laughs> like anything? And I couldn't answer the question because I've been lying to myself so long mm-hmm. that I didn't know how to tell the whole truth. You know, there were little nooks and crannies in the in the lie, right? But I, the truth would have broken me. Telling you the truth, I would have crumbled. I, you know, it, the only thing holding me together was my skin. I'd be all over the street without it. And so, like, being able to say, I never really wanted to be with you. Mm. I just didn't know what else to do. This is what everybody else does. They get married. They have kids. They, you know, I don't know. They have friends. I didn't want all these friends, but I had them because that's what you're, you're supposed to socialize. And I didn't know it was okay to be alone. I didn't know it was okay to not want to be around people. I didn't know it was, you know, it was okay to not be attracted to somebody, even though they're attracted to you. Mm-hmm. I, that was hard for me. I was like, well, maybe I should give them a shot. Cause you know, I ain't shit. You know, <laughs> if they're willing to give me a shot, I should give them one. Oh my God. How many relationships have I gotten into because of that? How many narcissists pursued me because I didn't reciprocate? Mm-hmm. And then after a while, I was like, well, I mean, why not? You're not doing anything else. Yeah. Wild. I. <laughs> it's an easy, slippery slope when you don't love yourself. It is so oh. easy to fall into those those patterns and those things. I still uh, don't know what I want, but I know what I don't want. And sometimes that's almost better because when you see the thing you don't want, you can immediately, nope, I've gone out of that situation. You know, I, I, I thought, I, I used to tell someone, they were like, what advice do you have? And it's usually 20-year-olds in my lives who say this. Mm-hmm. And I say, the 20s is about being dumb. Mm-hmm. It's new, you know, but when you get to your 30s, you look back on your 20s and you go, oh my God, the fuck were you thinking? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then you get to your 40s and you look at your 30s and you're like, come on. We talked about this. We looked at our 20s and we said X, Y, Z. What are you doing? And now I'm at my 50s and I'm like, oh, well. You're going to learn or you won't. Yeah. You know, you in this now. This is your life. This is your life. You're going to do something different or you're not. You know, and it's, I think after five decades, I think most people get to a place where your patience. Nikki Finney is a great poet. And she said, at a certain age, I think in the book, she said 43. 
and she's talking about Rosa Parks because Rosa Parks was 43 on the bus. Mm-hmm. And she says, at 43, your patience for fools, razor thin. Mm-hmm. And I thought in my head, and sometimes the fool is you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my patience for my own foolishness is razor thin. Yeah. You know, so I don't put myself in a lot of the same old situations because I don't have the patience for me when I'm full of shit. Mm-hmm. So... I've cut a lot of things off. I've told a lot of people I'm not interested. I stopped giving people attention who I really don't want to be friends with. Mm-hmm. I stopped calling people who no longer call me. Mm-hmm. That's a big that, one. I had to, one. When, when we were talking earlier about all these people who thought they were my friend and I wasn't theirs, and I don't know why they came to that conclusion, I've had that same thought about myself saying oh man me and my homie we go back and i'm like we're not homies they never call you mm-hmm. john they've never called they haven't they've never wished you a happy birthday they've never invited you to the house over the holidays they've never invited you on vacation they've never been in your city and looked you up and been like hey i'm in your city dog i found out oh yo you in my city yo we should hang out so stop calling them mm-hmm Take their number out of your phone. Stop kidding yourself. Don't ask them if we're friends because they might say, yeah, out of guilt. Just don't. Match their energy mm-hmm. and find out who your friends are. And here's that healing part that hurts. When your phone doesn't ring at all because you stop calling after people chasing their love. This is a beautiful moment in your life. You don't feel like it. Because now you, the, the, the curtains are open. You realize it's just a little white man that Oz is not that big face with the roaring voice. Yep. And so like, I found out that like, you know, I'm the little white man and I don't have all this power. And these people aren't really enthralled with me the way I am with them. It's not reciprocated. They don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, so now you have no friends because you've, you're living in the honesty and the radical acceptance. So now you have no friends. But now you can build and people will start showing up in your life who actually give a fuck, Mm -hmm. who notice when you're not really giving a fuck and they're like, yo, you good? And I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking about X. And they're like, hey, that's okay. You know, you want me to come back later? You want me to call later? And I'm like, you're going to call? And they're like, yeah. And when you don't have the self-love, you think they're crazy. You think they're idiots. You mm. say to yourself, the fucking, man, I don't know who this person is. They keep calling me. And you're not really irritated by them. You've just convinced yourself you ain't shit. You ain't worth shit. Nobody really wants to hang out with you. Uh-huh. So this person, because you don't think there's any worth or value, you must think, that, so this person must be crazy. I don't want these crazy people in my life. And it's not them. It's me. You know, it's, I don't know how to be intimate. I don't know how to feel comfortable. I have anxious attachment. I don't want to let that beast out Mm because then I'm going to call and text you all day. And I'm going to, I'm going to fucking chase you away because I really am allowing myself to feel care. But a funny thing happens when I do let it out and they're still there. And I'm like, uh, I don't know what to do now. And that's kind of like where I am in my life. There are people in my life who genuinely care. 
and I don't know what to do with them. I even asked one of my friends. I was like, are we friends? They were like, yeah, what? N-word, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no, I just, I call you and sometimes you call me, but like I've thought I was friends with people before and they and they really weren't that and they're like, no, 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 I'm I'm here. We're friends. We're yeah. we're homies, yes. And I'm like, oh. Okay, what now? Let's go hang out, I guess. Like <laughs> a six-year-old on the playground, like, oh, so we're friends? Okay, what do we do now? <laughs> and I'm 52. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I say this all the time as queer people, the not best thing, but one of the be most beautiful things that comes out of being queer is being to ch is getting to choose who your family is. Ugh. Because a lot of the times, don't worry eyes at me. <laughs> A lot of the times we get to we we get left by the wayside by our families. But we get to pull all these people into ourselves who will love us for who we are, who will meet us where we are. And a lot of the times we don't know what to do with that because we've been treated so negatively our entire lives. And, and what if and what if you never knew what family was? Mm -hmm. That's where I am. Yeah. I have no idea what it means to be part of a family. No idea. I lived in a house with people that were all born from the same woman, but we were beaten. She drank. We were yelled at, cursed at. We were told we were ungrateful bastards. We, our fathers didn't come see us. So there was a family, but, but not. I don't know what it's like to have to come home to safety and support. I don't know how to create safety or support. Mm -hmm. So do I, do I keep a distance from people because I'm still so toxic? Like that? I don't know. I don't, that's I, where I am. That's yeah, where I am. Yeah. yeah. And it, and that's part of the journey. Yeah. That's going to be part of your journey. Yeah. This is hip hop song I listen to where he says the, the hook in the song is I ain't got no answers. <laughs> <laughs> no answers I had over here. Hey, homie, I, mean, I ain't got I no answers. A, I have a plethora of answers, but I can give you all the answers I want. The answers are yours. You have the answers. You just gotta find the answers. That's the thing. Yeah, and I think my biggest fear right now, right, is still being genuinely for the most part, attracted to women. Mm -hmm. But women my age from my generation are not interested with someone who looks like me. Mm -hmm. And even if there was a woman interested, most likely she has children. Do I really want to put them through this in this society? Mm -hmm. I'm not their real dad. I'm not their real parent. They didn't ask for this fucking drama. Do I want to put them through getting picked on at school because I look like this? What about the rest of her family? How are they going to feel? Do I want to go through that? And so that's mostly why I'm single. I don't want to put anybody else through this struggle. I mean, you see the laws, you see the bills, you see what's happening. Oh, you know, yeah. it's, And it's not dramatic to say we're being hunted. So like, how do you invite somebody else into that kind of fucking chaos all because I feel entitled to be loved by somebody else? And like, I, it, it borderlines with selfishness to me. 
to me, I think it's, I don't think it's selfish to want to be loved. I, I think we trick ourselves into thinking that it's selfish and that we have learned through the years, through trauma and through heartbreak and through all the negativity in life that we don't deserve to be loved. But I think we all are, are worthy of love. And I think any person who truly loves you is not going to be phased. It's already going to yeah. be in the fight. Yeah, but like, here, here's my thing. Like, I, there have been times in my life where I have truly been in love with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go to their house and you meet their family. Okay. And you realize racism lives here. Mm-hmm. Okay. You still love this person. And I have to say to myself, okay, but if I take them, those motherfuckers are going to be at the wedding. They're going to be there around your children. Mm-hmm. That's part of them. So you're taking all of this. Now, does this person still deserve love? Yeah. But should they get it from me? I No. <laughs> so, like, so I'm abandoning mm-hmm. that. And I'm going against what I feel for them mm-hmm. for convenience and a lack of drama. And I think that people hundreds of times over the last three years, women have gotten in my DMs and been like, I'll fucking date you. I'll marry your ass tomorrow. I'm the, you know, wherever, Alabama, Seattle, Florida, we could do this. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And I'd say this, oh, you really, you really don't know. You don't know what you're asking. You know, and two years ago, when there weren't all these trans bills, you and I would be in that right now. Yeah. So, you know, you may have dodged a bullet and I'm helping you dodge a bullet by saying you don't want this. And so, like, I've kind of put myself away. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to allow myself the joy of companionship without the constant worry. I don't know if it's being an empath or not, but the constant worry about what the other person is going to go through mm-hmm. being with me. Like, do you have any, like, you, you have, you're a cishet woman. You have no idea what you're asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think I'm great. You think I'm a great conversation. You think I'm a caring person. And I am. What you going to do? When I get arrested for looking like this because we had to drive through Tennessee. What you gonna do when we gotta take the kids to Disney? You know, like mm-hmm. hell, what you gonna do in the summer when I get darker and we get pulled over? Like you mm-mm. Mm-mm. So like I think I'm at a place now where the only people I could date are other non-binary people. Mm-hmm. And if they have kids then their kids are already grown up with this and oh, I'm not causing any of the drama. So that narrows the field. Yeah. Especially in Bryan, Texas. Yeah. So I've had to have that radical acceptance that like, you're going to be alone for a while. Yeah. And that's going to have to be okay. Yeah. I, I hear that. And I being in, 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 in an interracial relationship, my partner talks a lot about being a white man, and he's like, I can't even imagine. I 
I I have some of it because I'm queer, obviously, but I can't even imagine how you feel as a black queer person. Mm -hmm. And that man is in my corner 100% of the time. But he also has kind of, you know, he's grown up in St. Louis and it's mostly black people here and poverty and and all these other things. But that's all. (laughs) My story is not comparable in that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I Someone on Facebook wrote a long time ago, a couple, about a good, I don't know, I want to say about five years ago. And this is how poignant it was to me. It's still stuck in my head. Like I can still see the paragraph mm-hmm. when I close my eyes. He said, a lot of us aren't being honest on why we date white people. And if we took a second to be honest, we'd realize we date white people simply because it's easier. Mm. Damn. It's only one person coming home affected by racism. It's only one person coming home, you know, being traumatized by a cop car driving by. It's only one person coming home being upset about the newest police brutality case. If both of us are upset, who's going to listen? You know, if I have to listen to you talk about the police brutality, then I talk about we're not going to get shit done in this house. Yeah. There has to be one person who can function in this society so the other person can have nervous breakdowns twice a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, yeah, yeah. I had to be honest about why. And, yo, this is... Whew, I'm so scared to say this, but it's the truth, and I feel like we have to get there. I had to be honest on why I was constantly swiping left on black women. Mm. It wasn't because I didn't like them. It wasn't because I don't love black women. Why am I doing that? Because I don't want both of us to be struggling. I don't want to see my partner fucking struggling with the patriarchy and racism and, 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 and. And I'm just like, I've met, I have so many beautiful, brilliant black women in my life who teach, who guide, who talk, who listen, who are worthy. And I'm still fucking, you know, calling Kristen (laughs) to go hang out because Kristen is drama free. She has no, she has no in-depth conversation about the system that she wants to have you know what i mean it's not intense mm-hmm. it's a vacation to at sometimes to date a uh, uh, basic mid white person is a fucking vacation from my existence mm. you know they talk oh i had a real hard time growing up i'm like oh really Oh, yeah, there was this, like, really busy street I had to cross to go to the grocery store. And I'm like, oh, no. And I'm just like, wow. That's a, that's the worst problem? Holy shit. I'm fucking enthralled. And it's so much, like, you know, they think, oh, well, you know, the government will get it together. No, not all police are bad. And I'm like. You know, for a moment, I'm visiting the petting zoo. I'm on the other side of the fence. Like, wow, these animals are, like, amazing. I never saw this in the projects, you know? 
It's a goat. It's like a real goat with horns and everything. And I don't want to go date somebody else who lives in the projects too. We're both fucking depressed. I don't want to be with another person who's like, fuck this planet. And so I, this is, you know, years ago, I had to be honest with myself. Do I hate black women? Fuck no. But I didn't give myself the opportunity to be with a black woman because I always thought to myself, there's a guilt in that. Again, like what I was talking about earlier, like I haven't done anything for them specifically Mm -hmm. for decades. So every time I'm sitting across the table from you, all I want to say is I'm sorry. Like all the time. And I can't have a relationship with someone who I just feel beneath. Mm. You've been struggling your whole life, and the least I could have done was held you up. And I failed you. Why do I deserve to have your body naked in the bed with me? Like, why? Mm -hmm. I don't think I deserve it. So, I never allowed myself, you know, and it's more about that self-forgiveness and yeah. you know but yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i got nothing that's that's it <laughs> that's it that's the full stop you know <laughs> so last the tears started coming and i dissociated it was gone yeah, no, it was no, like no, no. No. <laughs> a little too honest let's rear it in oh that's what, we're here, that's what we're here for we're here for the honesty um last question and we'll we'll wrap this up a little bit Give us a piece of advice for uh, allies, for people who may not struggle with mental illness, may not um, may not understand mental illness. How can those people be in our corner? I hear the word ally. I throw up a little bit in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for people who don't understand mental illness, the first thing they could do is admit they don't know. Mm. that's the hard part because you know colonization is real it happens Mm -hmm. to white people just as much as it happens to everybody else it happens to mentally healthy somewhat people people who've had a non-dysfunctional non-toxic household they could still be clueless and someone has told them oh that's not depression they just they're just being lazy yeah you know or they're just not being positive. You know, when one door closes, another one, uh, you know, that yeah, whole thing. That, yeah. Uh-huh. And so, like, to say to them, if you say you really don't know, then you have to admit that it's time to listen. Mm. Don't do, don't say, shut the fuck up and listen. And when you hear, what these people are struggling with parrot what they just said mm-hmm. they are struggling with this thing because of a chemical imbalance or they are struggling with this thing because they were sexually assaulted at six and they've never really come back from it it is what it is no judgment they know more than you because they've been living with it mm-hmm. so don't fix, don't solve. You don't know what you're talking about. So the only thing out of your mouth is what do you need? 
And if you can't do that, the best thing you could do is get out of their life. Mm. Sometimes the best thing, the most loving thing a rattlesnake can do is rattle. It's the most loving thing. So if you know you have your opinions about depression or anxiety and you're not willing to change, that's what you think, accept that, no judgment, and get out of their life. Mm-hmm. And I you're helping that. them by doing that. That's a helpful thing. Yeah. If you know you don't believe in that shit, admit you don't believe in it and step out of the way. You don't like that about yourself? Deal with that. Yeah, that's your own personal journey that you need to deal with. Uh, yeah. I think every single person that I have talked to up until this point has said, listen, but no one has put it that way. And that is that that phrasing of it is beautiful. That mm-hmm. phrasing of it feels rooted in some real life. Like, not that every person who has said, listen, isn't rooted in real life. But that that is something I haven't heard yet on this podcast. Because that, that question is kind of innocuous. Everybody's going to say to listen. But everybody says it a little differently. That one hit me in a way that I did not expect for it to hit me. Um, <laughs> uh, John. First of all, it's been lovely to meet you and lovely to get to know you. Um, I, I, this is a friendship I hope that will carry on beyond this podcast into the real world. Oh, or into the sea, fuck. <laughs> I'm good at it. I'm good at being a friend. So you got. I'm gonna me. learn. I'm gonna take notes from you. Yes, I got it. I got you. Um, this is the part of the podcast where you plug anything you have. I know you got some things. Some books and podcasts so talk to us about what you have let let everybody know where they can find you well the memoir i'm looking for a literary agent the memoir is coming the second book of poetry is coming but the podcast black fluid poet mm-hmm. um that's up everywhere podcasts are played and i have a patreon account as well patreon.com slash black fluid poet and it's where i'm putting my memoir excerpts off i'll be doing that tonight as well Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I will link all of that down below in the comment section. Again, John, thank you so much for being on the podcast, for uh, answering a random DM from (laughs) random stranger number 26 million. No, I answer, and I I just want to say this to the public, I answer every inbox message I get on all social media. Oh, dang. Every one of them. Every one of them. I actually got a little achievement thing on TikTok for that. Shit, you know, I and I appreciate that, you know, because I get to have you here on the podcast. But also, a lot of people don't do that. I try to respond to every comment every time somebody says something. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. Even if it's just emojis, I try to respond. Um, I want to build that connection because you know, TikTok and and social media as a whole is about building community. So I allegedly, allegedly, (laughs) allegedly, for some of us, it's about a building community. For others. (laughs) <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> but that's none of my business. Um, all right, you all. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Mental Health Chat Monday. We will be back. We will be back Monday with a brand new guest next week, like always. Again, my name is D Bionic. You can find me on all social media at D Bionic. It's called branding. Look it up. And I will see you all next time. Bye.